Good to see everybody. Glad you're here. Welcome. If you're a guest, thanks for coming. Um, and a hello, as always, to our friends at the Bel Air campus, the Edgewood campus, and the 192-year-old Mountain Road campus. That's you guys. Some of you look kind of old. <laughs> Glad you're here. Welcome. You know, we're finishing up today this series we're calling Disillusioned. And uh, it's given us a chance to look at some important uh, issues, but even more fun, it's given us a chance to look at some illusions, which I hope you've enjoyed. I got another one for you today. Put this picture on the screen. Tell me, which direction is that cat going, up or down? Can you tell? What do you think? How many think up? Yeah. How many think down? Yeah. Of course, the answer is, who cares? <laughs> In my case, I hope he's going down, you know, way, way down. Okay. Got another one for you. See how your eyes are doing here. All right. Someone can tell me out loud, where have you seen these three colors together before? On a stoplight. Very good. Some of you uh, uh, didn't quite know, but uh, here we go. Uh, I'll hold out the color. You tell me what it means when you come to a stop sign, okay? Well, now it's an intelligence test. Okay, ready? The red card means? Very good. The green card? No, that's not. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah, it means go. Some of you are like, it means you can work in the U.S. No, no, no. Green card means go. And the yellow card means? <laughs> this dude right here is like, floor it. <laughs> yeah, what do you drive? Watch out for him in the parking lot. One more time. The red card means? The green card means? And what's left? Yellow card and it means? Slow down. Here we go. We're going to take these three cards, put them inside my piece of Aegis newspaper here. And now we need a magic word. Give me a magic word. Oh, abracadabra. That's really creative. Abracadabra. All right. I'm sure that'll work. All right. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'll pull them out one at a time. And when I do, you tell me what the color means when you come to a stop sign. Ready? First of all, we have the red card, which means? Very good. Next, we have the green card, which means? What's left? Ladies and gentlemen, you will be amazed to discover that the yellow card has completely Vanished. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So you don't. That's kind of a lame applause. So you did you see it behind here? Did you see that? You saw this here. You know. You think that's a yellow card, don't you? Yeah. Aha! Did I get you? A little bit, huh? Okay. Yeah, I heard that. Turn it over. Not there. Gotcha. Not there. <laughs> but if you want to see the other side, there it is. Ah, see, I did get you. All right, there you go. All right. So we just showed, among other things, that a whole bunch of people can be wrong all at the same time. Is that right? Yeah, I think we showed that. Boy, that's true in my life, too. That's how an illusion works, isn't it? You see something, you're pretty sure you're confident about it being a certain way, and it turns out later you were... Wrong, yeah. I've been uh, that way many times in my life. You probably have too. See things a certain way and then... You know, when you figure out something that you thought was a certain way and it's only an illusion, it can leave you kind of disillusioned. And we've talked about some of the disillusionment with Christianity in recent weeks here. 
Things that sure seem to look a certain way. It looks like a certain thing with regard to Christians, but we're trying to sort out what's illusion, what's real. You know, are Christians judgmental and exclusive? Are Christians too political? Is it true that Christians are anti-science? And I hope you've appreciated these messages and taken them to heart. They seem really important to me. And... uh, One of the things we've had to come to grips with is that at the bottom of all of those assumptions that some people have about Christians and those things is that, well, sometimes we've acted that way. We are the ones who, in fact, sometimes are doing it wrong because we don't live up to our calling. And sometimes we are pretty judgmental or anti-science or political. So today we're going to look at the question, you know, is Christianity anti-gay? Do Christians hate homosexuals? Does God despise people who identify as same-sex orientation or who identify as LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or even questioning? These are important questions because it sure kind of looks like Christians hate gays sometimes, doesn't it? I had a friend of mine, uh, since I've known since middle school, come out as gay a while back, and before I really knew what happened, he unfriended me on Facebook. And I wasn't sure what to think about that. I, w- I was kind of su- surprised, actually. I have his number, so I got a hold of him another way, and I said, hey, and by the way, what, what, what's up with that, the, the Facebook thing? He unfriended me. It was awkward, you know. He said, well, you know, I, I, I don't know. He says, I, I just know that you're a Christian and all. What he was trying to say and what he eventually did say was that he didn't want to get hurt by me because he figured that I would unfriend him. So he unfriended me before I had a chance. Do you see where we are, people? We're to the place where when you come out, you just assume that Christians you know are going to turn on you, unfriend you, shun you. And so you might as well beat them to the punch so you don't have to experience that. Justin Lee took a phone call uh, at a Christian ministry where he worked. And the voice on the other end was a woman who was sobbing uncontrollably, trying to gain her composure and get her words out a bit at a time. And eventually, he learned that her name was Cindy. She was the mother of a 15-year-old son, her only, her only son and a, uh, her only child, and a real pride and joy to her. She explained he was such a good kid, a smart kid, best kid, kind, loyal, honest, good student, active in youth group, committed Christian kid. She was so proud of him, but then in her story, she said that the unthinkable had happened. In a late-night discussion a while earlier, he had confessed to his parents that he was gay. And so for a couple of weeks, those parents had just been reeling from that, wondering what they do wrong, what do they do next. They were reading the Bible and going online and trying to talk to their son, hoping to find out he was changing his mind or, you know, he was wrong after all, but he just kept saying he was sure he was gay. So Cindy was afraid. She was afraid for her son. She was afraid. She felt fear for his future. She felt fear for his soul. She felt fear, you know, about what it would mean for him in a family and what, 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 whether he would get AIDS and, you know, suffer from hate crimes or bullying. She had a lot of worries. But most of all, the thing that she was most afraid of, turns out, was their church. She explained that they'd been members a long time of a church and she loved the church. She, said, she kept saying it was a wonderful church with wonderful people. But she said, I... If they found out about this, they would would never accept him. They'd never treat him the same. They'd never take him in. I just know it. 
And it was the threat of Christian rejection following him for the rest of his life that shook her up the most. Whatever mistakes and choices and avenues her son might make in life, Cindy was pretty sure that God would still stay with him and have mercy on him and could work things with him over a period of time, but she wasn't so sure about the church. You see where we are? An extensive study done by the Barna Research Firm asked 16 to 29-year-olds not long ago uh, to describe present-day Christianity in America. They could choose positive words, any words they wanted, like hope or uh, offers values or whatever, or negative words like judgmental, hypocritical, that kind of thing. And uh, you may not be surprised that in this study, 91% of non-Christians chose as their descriptive word for Christianity anti-homosexual. Not loves Jesus, studies the Bible, makes society better, but anti-homosexual. What might shock and sadden you a little more is to know that 80% of churchgoers describe the church the same way, which maybe is actually good news because maybe it'll finally mean we're ready to acknowledge that maybe we have done a few things wrong. David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, in another three-year study of young Americans, report this. In our research, the perception that Christians are against gays and lesbians has reached critical mass. The gay issue has become the big one, the negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christianity's reputation. Outsiders say our hostility toward gays, not just opposition to homosexual politics or behaviors, but disdain for gay individuals has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. Our anti-homosexual reputation isn't just that we're opposed to gay marriage, it's this hostility to gay people. A reputation that leaves someone like Cindy wondering if they can stay at the church. Which reminds me a little bit of a parable that Jesus told one time uh, about two people who go to the temple to pray. And one of them is a devoutly religious man and he prays out loud so everybody can hear, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. And he names some of the other people, rob, like robbers. I'm, I thank you that I'm not like evildoers or adulterers or even like this tax collector next to me. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Next to him was this lowly tax collector who prayed next, clearly a sinner, and he just simply prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And the question that comes to mind when it comes to this issue of homosexuality is do Christians in the mind of most people seem more like the first guy or the second guy? There's pretty much no question that we seem a lot like the first guy apparently. And Jesus said it was the second guy who went home justified before God. So we're at a place where there's a lot of words that come to mind. One word is tension. There's a lot of tension on the issue, isn't there? I mean, it's like a big fight now. Like Saturday night, we had a big fight here, you know, between, uh, you know, Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather, right? The flight, fight of the century. Well, that's what we got. We got the big ladies and gentlemen in this corner, gays. And in this corner, Christianity. That's what it's come to. Christians. Pick a side. Bash each other. Make generalized, here's how you do it. You make generalizing statements. You say, well, all Christians are ignorant homophobes trying to force their outdated religious views down everyone's throats. 
That's how you fight. Or, or you, you call all gays, you know, homosexual activists who want to undermine moral uh, fabric, of, fabric of society and, and d- d- destroy family in the name of their selfish and perverse agendas. That's how you do it. You take a side, throw some punches. It's all about as productive as the riots we have in the streets. And that's what we're told to do, and it's largely what we've done. It's why Cindy feels the way she does. So it's a tense issue. It's an important issue, friends. Because we all have gay friends and family we love. If, if churches are viewed as unsafe and focus more on politics than people, well, then we're going to raise up and are in the process right now of raising up the most anti-Christian group of hostile people this country has ever seen. Because they're going to be convinced they have to choose between actually loving people or being Christian. This issue has compromised our credibility and severely hindered our ability to actually speak truth and love to an entire generation. How we handle this really matters because the very essence of our identity as a church, what we're here to do to represent Jesus, is at stake. Ironically, in the time of Jesus, everyone who met Him, sinner and saint alike, knew one thing, and that is that Jesus loved them. But today... If you talk to most homosexual people or someone who loves someone who's gay, the one thing they think they know about Jesus is that he hates them. Something is terribly wrong with that picture, and we must change it. And this is personal. Every single one of us hearing this right now either experiences same-sex attraction or loves and cares about someone who does. It might be a friend or a family member, a son or a daughter, a parent, a brother, a sister. It might be you yourself. But all of us know what it's like to have this be personal. A lot of us know what it's like to be torn between family and faith, torn between family members. Some of us are holding our breath trying to figure out where this is going. And it's personal because, friends, it's not out there. It's us. We're talking about in here at Mountain where there are followers of Jesus who, who are confused about where someone should land biblically and relationally on this issue. Where, where there are teenagers struggling with their sexual identity. And, and there are men and women who find themselves in an ongoing battle with their own experiences and with where God's Word comes on this subject. And there's a lot of folk among us who are maybe trying to figure out if this could in fact be a church home for them or not. Because this is their big your big theological question. Do I have to be a Bible-banging homophobe to belong here? Could I be accepted here? Or will you only ever be able to look at me as different and unacceptable? Could I really be at home here? Can I follow Jesus in this place? Do you view homosexuality as a sort of sin at the top of the sin totem pole? So it's personal. It's personal for me. Because I have people I care about very much in my circle of friends who are gay, some of whom are, many of whom are here this weekend. Some are Christian, some are not. Friends I grew up with, played sports with, went to seminary with. Friends in my circle today, play sports with, study the Bible with, serve alongside with, consider friends, experience same-sex attraction, live the gay lifestyle. And I care about them. These are real. So it's not an issue. We're not talking about a topic here. We're talking about people. And families and hearts and lives and 
I think we can agree that it's very sensitive. I think we can agree it's very divisive, can't we? It divides political parties. It divides workplaces. It divides families. It divides generations. It divides religions. It divides Christians. And can we agree it's complex? Anybody who tells you it's simple, black and white, is really either not being honest or they're just not very bright. Or the topic maybe is just easy if you've never had a gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender friend or family member. This subject is only easy if you've never been invited to a gay or lesbian wedding and had to think about what to do about it. It's only easy if you've never had a son or daughter or someone you care about say you're gay and you're not sure how. Or, or a, when, a, when they ask you, what does God think about me? If you've never had to live in fear, if the church finds out that you're attracted to people of the same sex, if you've never had that, then it might be simple. If you don't love anyone you, or care about anyone who's gay, then maybe it's easy for you. But, you know, it's not, it's not easy. And there's some anxiousness about it. And a lot of us are nervous. Some of you are nervous. I'm going to go too soft on this. Some of you are nervous. I'm going to go too hard. Somebody else. And there's lots of stuff that we could talk about. And lots of stuff we could argue about and disagree about. Can we agree that we have lots to talk about? I mean, just for example, people like to debate. And there's a long discussion. Lots of research being done about is homosexuality generated by nature or nurture? You know, is it biological? Is it hardwired in? Or did I learn it from my environment? Is it physiology or family, primarily? And there's lots of research in both directions. And it's kind of inconclusive. Good evidence on both sides. We could argue about that. Or, or do homoerotic desires ever change? And many in this room would say, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's been my experience. And others say it's just a massive insult for you to even suggest that. Some say, well, how does it change? Well, you try harder. And some say it's only by the power of God. And others say, I can't believe you're even talking about that. Or gay marriage. And some say, well, of course. And some say, absolutely not. You know, we're going to have opportunities. You, you, you know, we can't get through everything today. So let me just say, if you, if you want to reflect on this or share some of your thoughts and feelings, we welcome that. You can send them by email. We're going to have moments uh, in the coming future where we'll have opportunities for dialogue and discussion on this where we'll gather and talk about it more. So be at ease. We're not going to get through everything. This sermon is remarkably short in regard to how massive the subject matter is. A lot of really important things are going to be left out. It's just the way it has to be. So if we can just kind of agree that I'm not trying to provide answers as much as just steer us all gently toward Jesus a little bit today and that all of us maybe it'd be even better if all of us could figure out is there any way that I might have been a bit wrong in this and and move toward Christ that's the mission of this church to help move people toward Jesus to make disciples means helping people to know trust follow obey love serve Jesus would that be a good goal? Let's move a little bit toward Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do ask Your Spirit to make Your Word and Your heart clear today. Help us all to, uh, to receive You, Your love, and Your truth. Inform Your Son, Jesus, more fully in us and draw us to Him, every one of us. Draw us to Jesus today. We pray in His name. Amen. I ran into a friend uh, at a restaurant recently here in town and uh, she's a raving fan of Mountain largely because of what God has just done in her life brought a lot of change in her life and she's always trying to get her friends to come to Mountain so when I showed up there she was with her sister well there was an opportunity she was going to try to work this deal you know where I would try to help convince her sister to come to Mountain sometimes so she kept saying in the conversation you know hey well you ought to come to Mountain sometime you know like as if you know see he's not too strange you know something like that I just smiled you know and she kept her sister just kind of ignored it 
just ignored the, uh, the, every time she said that. And finally, her, her sister said it one more time, like, well, you, you know, you ought, to come, you ought to come this weekend. We're doing this thing, you ought to come this weekend. Her sister finally just kind of paused and looked right in my eyes. She said, well, I'm gay. Would I be welcome in that church of yours? I remember exactly how she phrased it. Would I be welcome in that church of yours? I, I want to tell you how I answered in that moment. I, I, I think it's probably good for you to think about how you think the question should and could be answered. I hate that she had to ask in a way. That's a problem. And some of the problem is that we've said things and we've done things, but some of it is that we haven't said some things. We've been mute to the scores of men and women who worship silently right now in Christian churches who are battling with same-sex attraction because they're terrified to tell anyone because they think if Christians knew their secret, well, they'd be tagged and discarded and labeled and named and shamed and blamed. And friends, a Christian community can't thrive if there's no authenticity. If people learn to not talk about certain things, it doesn't work. You can just have shallow boring Christianity, but that's not real Christian community. We need to be able to talk about the real you and the real me and the real God. That's what we mean by keeping it real. And if you somehow are told that your struggle is unlike any other sin at the, at the top of the sin totem pole, then you learn to keep quiet and go away. And that doesn't help us achieve genuine community. So we need to break that silence and talk about it with the awareness that none of us... Um, and all of us need the same things. So I have found that there are three kind of important things to hold together as we attempt to talk about these issues as Christian people. And they all start with C. One is we need to have a conviction about our own sin. Anytime you enter into this conversation, make sure you keep straight that you're convicted of your own brokenness. Two, we need to have a clarity about the Bible and God's best, His Word, and what it really says to us about life not pet issues, but life, and because God so desperately wants what's best for us. So we need to have clarity about the Bible and what it says. And then third, we need to have compassion. Compassion for everyone involved, because that's just the way of Jesus. So if you think about those three, if you don't have a conviction about your own sin, then you're going to approach this talking about them. And you're going to forget that we're talking about our sin, my sin, all of our sin. Those those who have a good picture of their own sin and convicted of that know how short they fall of God's glory and therefore love and drink in deeply rich grace from God. But some people aren't like that. Jesus said it this way, those who have been forgiven much love much. And that's why some people frankly don't have much love on this issue toward anyone because they don't think they have that much need of being forgiven much. So a conviction of our own sin is pretty important. And clarity about the Bible is really, really important. Otherwise, if we're not convinced that we're going to put the Bible above our wants and needs and put it somewhere below and it answers to us, well, then we're just going to find ourselves kind of helplessly flailing about a slave to whatever you feel or think or do or the tide of public opinion or whatever anyone else tells you. We'll just argue with each other and never get anywhere. And the third is if you don't have compassion, then I don't trust you. I don't like you either. And I don't think you care about me or understand me, and you don't sound like someone who speaks for Jesus anyway. So conviction about our own sin, clarity about God, 
and what's best through his word and then compassion for everyone involved is kind of what we want to try to hold together. And with those three things, it makes it possible for us to say today that, that there are some same-sex attraction people in our fellowship who may be lonely and, and silent, who, who need to know that they're loved by God and that they would feel courage and acceptance and move toward the light of community maybe for the first time this weekend and that this whole community would be touched by Jesus and filled with the Spirit in such a way that we would know how to be like Jesus and embrace people, including same-sex attraction people. Welcoming them as fellows who are on a spiritual journey with us. Now, there's a lot of things I don't know. There's a few things I do know. Let me tell you some things that we can all know for sure. Things that aren't wrong. Number one, we know God's heart. We know His general disposition. We know who He is. God, God is love. That is His fundamental disposition toward people. It is consistent and is clear. He can do no other than be true to Himself. God is love. John 3.16 For God so what? Loved the what? The world that He gave His only Son that, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So it doesn't matter who you're sitting next to today. It doesn't matter who you live with or who you run into. Police or protester, sinner or saint, God can do no other than to be faithful to the truest part of who He is at His core, and that is God loves. Second thing I know, not only that God loves, I know, I know some things about God's people. And that is that we are called to absorb and to receive that love in such a way that it reflects out through us. That's why God put us here. Not to fulfill our own agenda, but His agenda, which drives out of His love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for comes from God. Love comes from God. Everyone who is born of God and knows God, whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is love so we know that about God and God's people here's what we know about the world we know the world is broken sin has infested humanity and all of us in such a way that none of us is exempt it's like a pervasive disease that every one of us has Genesis 1 is awesome open the Bible it's like hey you're all created in the image of God you're beautiful little mini me's of God awesome hey turn the page one page Genesis 3 oh yeah it's all messed up now yep that's pretty much it. Genesis 3 says what Romans 3.23 says. That all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Genesis 1, hey, look at me. I'm in the glory of God. Genesis 3, uh, the, the image of God is marred and messed up in us. Guess what? That means that the orientation that all of us have is now skewed. Our orientation is altered in every way. Our head, our heart, even the things we think and feel deeply are, can't be trusted. What I want can't be necessarily trusted anymore because of our orientation. This includes our sexuality. Our whole life orientation. Our wants are warped. And it runs deep and affects our hearts and our brains and our minds and all of that. We have to get reoriented toward God. It doesn't happen naturally. It's like, a, it's like our lives are... We, we come with this compass built in, but like a, the, sin of magne, the magnetism of sin comes and sort of throws the needle off. And So to get back to true north, 
God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to say He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the Word, the way, the truth, and the life. And that's how we get back on track with God in the midst of our brokenness. Because right now, you know what? We're made for God, but we set our affections on all kinds of other stuff. Because our, our, our compass is messed up. And so we think this is the way to go, and this is the way to go. Our wants are warped, our desires are twisted, and brokenness unites us as the great common denominator, putting us on the level ground before God in all of our need. In the midst of that, that's why Jesus was sent. And what He does is He sends us, and that's the next thing that we know, is that we are sent, if you follow Jesus, you are sent to love. Ultimately, that's what God wants to do. He sends us toward people to be connectors between people and Jesus. That's how God loves the world. That's why He sent His Son to love the world, that they might know Him. And so He sends us as these ambassadors to connect people. That means that people aren't required to clean themselves up before they come to Christ. While we were still sinners... Romans 5 says, Christ died for the ungodly. He came to us. And we're invited to humbly come to Christ so that then He can clean us up. He came to us first. The church then is a place that anyone can come to. It's a hospital for the sick, not a holding tank uh, for the already healthy and holy. It's a place to connect in a life-giving and life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. So we seek to connect people with Jesus. That's the mission of this church. To make people into disciples, it's called. So He then can lead them where they need to be. Whoever you are now, that's what we're trying to do is get you connected to Jesus and let Him work it out with you. We don't have the power to change each other. I can't push a button and fix you or change you or cause you to grow, but Jesus can do all of that. And it happens in the same way it happened in the days of Jesus, through as he befriended people, as he reached out to people, even people that did stuff that really bugged him. He hung out with people all the time and he, he was patient with them and that's how he's been with me. He's been my friend and he's been patient with me. So we're welcoming here in the same way that Jesus was welcoming. When he said to that man Zacchaeus, knowing that Zacchaeus was a lion, cheat, and a skunk and had a lot of things that weren't so good about his life, Jesus said, can I come to your house and hang out with you and eat lunch today? And Zacchaeus said, yes. Jesus befriends people, and so we welcome people here. Our arms, our hearts, and our church doors are open genuinely wide to all who are seeking Christ in this fellowship. We believe God loves all people, and that means people who identify as LGBTQ. And by God's love alive in us through Jesus, we do too. When you're thinking about people from the LGBTQ community, you might, under, you might wonder, where and how might they find a connection to God through Jesus? Where might they find that love? I want to ask, if not here, where do you suppose? If God can't count on His people to be the ones to actually bring the love He's trying to bring to the whole world, where do you expect them to find it? All are welcome. If they're not welcome, then I have to walk out the door with all of them, leaving the sanctuary, just those who are entitled to cast the first stone. You know what Jesus would say to a gay person standing right in front of him right now this minute? I'm pretty convinced he'd say, I love you. Because that's the message they probably most don't believe and most need to hear. I love you. Maybe there's someone who's same-sex orientation hearing that for the first time today. That's what Jesus would say to you. I love you. 
Maybe there's some believers in the room who are heterosexual who are hearing that for the first time too. I don't know. I know the one thing Jesus would not say is, well, you're not welcome in my church because Jesus welcomed, ate with, supported, loved, understood, listened to, and validated the stories of everyone who came into contact with him. And we seek to do the same humbly because we've not always done it well. We've sometimes done it wrong. And at this time, at the same time, we, we believe that all of us in the church are on a journey, a journey that the Bible calls sanctification, having our identity and our living reshaped by Jesus all the time. That's what we're about, yes? But we just need to get to the place where we can just love people and have the conversation, not have to go within the first 10 seconds to, hey, and by the way, can you stop being gay? Can we just be friends? Can we stop arguing and start loving? Can we start doing what Jesus did? Can we, can we seek to be better bridge builders? Because there's a huge chasm and divide between gays and Christians. Can we just seek to be bridge builders? Can we love people one at a time and listen and learn and acknowledge it's going to take a special sensitivity because of where we've been? It's a big task to reshape how the whole world thinks about the church now. It's a big task to reshape how LGBTQ people think about God now. It's a big task to reshape maybe how the church thinks about its mission. So our hearts and our doors are open wide after the manner in which Jesus welcomed people to Himself. We recognize the church is a community of sinners who are held together by an allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And as such... This place is composed of sinners who are at various stages of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And we intend to make room for all who are seeking to connect and follow Jesus on that journey. If you love Jesus and you're messed up, you're welcome here. Me too. And that means all of us. Rather than take a stand, we need to move toward people. At this point in time, now there's all so much. I don't know. I don't know how to say it all. I, I don't know what to say even, except a few things just been kind of pressed on my heart. I I've uh, been thinking a lot about this for the last few years and listening a lot, praying a lot, talking a lot. A couple of things I think just I would just maybe try to leave us with. One thing I'm pretty convinced of is that that God is grieved over the pain and the mistreatment that have been inflicted on LGBT people by Christian people, especially by Christian people. And I've got to confess my own sins in this. So I'm embarrassed to admit that, especially years ago, you know, it was very easy for me with all the guys just to kind of fall in with gay, gay jokes or bashing or learning later in one case that one of my friends was struggling with that, it, that very issue, and he made a judgment about how Christians thought about gays. And I really badly misrepresented Jesus that day. I've recognized a lot of that. I'm really sincerely sorry for some of those things, and I think it's good for all of us to kind of recognize that we've inflicted pain by just what we've said and left unsaid and done and left undone. I asked a, I asked a New Testament scholar one time, I said, what do you think is the most important biblical passage when it comes to relating to homosexuality. I knew he was a conservative scholar. I knew he was a traditional scholar. I thought I knew what he might say. But he surprised me. Without missing a beat, he said, Matthew 19, 19. I thought, Matthew 19, what is that? Is that, is, that, uh, is that what Jesus said about homosexuality? Oh, wait, no, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Uh, is it, well, what is that? I couldn't remember. I looked it up. You know what it says? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
love your neighbor as yourself. There's no qualifier for records. It doesn't say love your neighbor except gays and lesbians or except people that smell bad. It doesn't say anything like that. Just treat your neighbors, whoever they are, with love. And I can tell you on the authority of the Bible that any person, any person, black or white, Asian or Latino, rich or poor, young or old, gay or straight, bi or trans, anyone who goes unloved and mistreated, that grieves our God. And His people ought not to be the ones in the middle of that. And so, you may think it's bold. It might be. But be bold. Love people who are made in the image of God. And guess what? If loving people who are made in the image of God is scandalous, then that's a scandal I'll sign up for. Put my name in the paper for that one. Love is an orientation. And that's what Jesus calls us to. Every follower of Jesus Christ is called to orient the compass of our skewed heart in the orientation of love for God and neighbor. Well, what if I don't agree with... I have a friend who doesn't agree with me on some things. Friends, I'm married to someone who doesn't agree with me on half things. You can figure it out. We love each other. We apologize and we're not going to be a place with gay bashing and all of that. Let's be known that as a place that takes John 3.16 for God so loved all people and doesn't put qualifiers there. Unless, of course, you're gay. No. I like what Billy Graham says. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge and our job is to love. So the second thing that I, I, I feel pretty convicted and so clear about as our leaders have kind of wrestled through this recently together is that God needs us and expects His followers to, to speak truth in love. You know, so often in our world, and especially in Christian circles, people speak love, what they feel is love sometimes, but there's no truth, so it's not real love. Or they speak truth, but they don't have any love, so it's not real truth. We need to speak truth in love. And of course, for this, we, we seek out truth from Jesus and God's Word. And what God's Word reminds us, the truth is this, that, that, that we're all created, as we said in Genesis 1, in the image of God. Sexuality is a part of what is beautiful and created well in God's image. And then the truth is also that we're all broken, all of us, in so many ways. And sexuality is part of that as which is broken. All of us experience broken sexuality. And as a result, it can lead us into painful things for us and can lead us into practices and ways that, that naturally sort of separate us from God. And so the Bible comes and reminds us, God, God sent His Son Jesus, that healing and wholeness can be found again in a restored relationship where the brokenness can be healed, where we can be led toward a, a better way. And so God continually holds out to us a higher, better way for us. And it requires that we trust Him, that He knows what He's talking about, and we have to sort of decide, are we going to follow the way of Jesus because we believe it will lead to life, or are we going to follow our own skewed compass when it comes to sexuality the, the, the standard that's left before us is, is chastity which basically means faithfulness that God's best it's not limiting but liberating you know when you look at the scriptures in the Old Testament you get a very strong picture of male and female there one man one woman in a marriage covenant from the very beginning of Scripture. Lots of examples of people in the Old Testament who don't follow this sort of ethic that God outlines. That's why there's so many prohibitions in the Old Testament against the neighboring nations and even the people of God saying, you know, trust God, do it His way. The New Testament comes along and echoes and affirms this trajectory. 
There's a lot of passages in the Bible you can try to look and twist and dance and make them say other things, but it's pretty hard to come to a place that, that, that doesn't acknowledge that um, God's design for full sexual expression is ultimately between a man and a woman in the safety and a commitment of marriage. And that any sexual activity outside of that, whether gay or straight, in the Bible is described as outside God's plan and best and deciding that we know better than God. And that's not really good news for any of us. It's a hard word. You find places in scriptures where marriage is defined and upheld in this way, like Hebrews 13, 4, where it says, Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. It's not talking about marriage being the only way. Jesus was single. Paul was single. It's saying that... that um, well, I can't find any single verse in which God blesses any sexual relationship outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus endorsed marriage. Matthew 19, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So the two are no longer two, but one flesh. These and so many other scriptures, um, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1, and so forth, kind of uphold this, this sort of posture which is difficult what, 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 what helps is that it all comes down to this one point in scripture Romans 3 10 and 11 say this no one is righteous no not one no one fully sees God all of us have turned aside all of us are image bearers of God and yet we're all marred image bearers because we're all swept along by the forces of this sinful world and those identifiers then come to us and they start to name us in our life you might have heard these names spoken to you from the mouth of the devil himself. It might have come from a, a mean coach or a parent. Stupid, ugly, fat, lazy, liar, alcoholic, workaholic, dumb, never amount to anything, sinner, lusty, homosexual, perfectionist. And these labels, if we're not careful, we allow to begin to identify us and we begin to take on and say that's who we are. But you know what? The Bible says we're so much more than those names and those labels. Jesus absorbed all of that to give us a new name. He defined our sins so that we can live defined by His righteousness. He absorbed our sin on the cross. That means that the good news of Jesus is not that we're invited now to sort of try harder, to do better, to sort of live our lives more like God. No, no, no. The good news of Jesus is a death certificate that you get with your name on it. And then it opens up to a birth certificate providing us with a brand new identity. The image of God was marred and messed up, but it's been revived and renewed in Jesus. We've been killed in Jesus' death. We've been buried in Jesus' tomb. We've been raised in Jesus' resurrection. He asked us to trust us so much that we would turn from our sin and, and, and turn to Him and so that our old self is no longer defined by who we are or what we do we get a new name, Beloved. We get a new address, you're in Christ. And we get a new reason to live, a high and holy calling, which is to spread the good news of God who brings this amazing love to all people. Now, it, it doesn't mean, and, and one of the things that's very hard to swallow at this point for people of same-sex lifestyle is that you're, you're telling me that the practice of homosexuality in the Bible is outside of God's best and all I can do is I, I want to say I don't think it means that but I, I, I have to just say yes it, it is what the scriptures appear to say 
And you might be helped to know that every one of us is brought under that same indictment. That things about us that are just the way we seem to be are brought under the judgment of God, but they are removed, thankfully, through the grace of God as we trust in salvation for Christ. Now, does this mean that if we turn to Jesus that all of the old us goes away? No. I have a friend who's an alcoholic and uh, he prayed that God would take away his drinking and it happened. Now, he's almost apologetic about it because he knows it doesn't happen that way for most people. But it happened for him and others struggle for a lifetime and it's been that way in my life. Things that I've prayed would be reversed and turned don't always turn and I just have to continually submit them back to the Lord. And it's that way for many people of same-sex orientation who struggle for a long time or perpetually with this. But it's not the final word. It doesn't define us. Listen to this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6. Now here's a passage of Scripture that loops every single one of us is. Here's, here's the Apostle Paul. He's talking about all of us. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there's a real pick-me-up. Look carefully at that list. Guess what? You're on it. I don't care who you are. Any wrongdoers in the room? Anybody not a wrongdoer? Anybody not a wrongdoer? Raise your hand real high. Jesus wants to get to know you better. Anybody, anybody, any sexually immoral people in the room? Well, yeah, every hand should go up, but we'd prefer to point fingers. Friends, I'm on that list. You're on that list. And none of us deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. We're all on it somewhere, you see. So, yes, it's true that any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman is is not God's best and viewed as sin in God's eyes, but it's not the sin. It's not the one on top of the totem pole as we've sometimes made it out to be. It's right in the middle of all the other stuff. And let me point out that the Bible never says that sexual temptation is sin or that sexual orientation is sin or that feelings are sins or that attractions are sins. The Bible never says that. It does say that choosing to, to follow a deliberate mental engagement and behavior, that's where the problem lies and that we have to subject all of our lives over to Christ and trust Him to help us, no matter who we are, because all of us are sexually broken, sexual sinners. Nobody has room for holier-than-thou attitudes in the room. My sin separates me from God just as much as yours and anyone else's. And we all stand under the judgment of God. And all of us are in need of His grace. You know, we need to get rid of that statement that says, Love the sinner, but hate the sin. That drives a lot of people crazy. I'm not one of those people that drives crazy. You know what? Jesus really never said that so much as He said, Love the sinner and hate your own sin. Before God, we're not gay or straight or transgender or bi. There's only one kind of person before God, and that is someone who comes broken, humble, messy, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the person who finds righteousness in God. Here's the good news. Wouldn't it be a bummer if we ended the service right here, and that was the end of the Bible right there? So you're like, hey, you know, all of you are wrongdoers, and you don't inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, stand for closing prayer. That'd be a real downer. Guess what? That's not where the Bible ends. Oh, you greedy, jealous, prideful, hip- hypocritical, gluttony-filled, lust-filled gossipers. Want some good news? I think we could all use a little good news right now. Here's what verse 11 says. After it lists all those things that's wrong with us, all the ways our compasses are broken, the Bible says this, and that is what some of you, what's the word? 
were, past tense. That doesn't define me anymore. You were washed, you're now clean. You were sanctified, you're becoming like God every day. You were justified. Justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. And how did that happen? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. Your identity is not what you've done. It's not all the idolatry we've gotten caught up in and putting other things in front of God. Your identity is that you are a child of God and the core of your personhood is in Jesus. Don't ever forget that. Somebody asked me one time, do homosexuals go to hell? Kind of cornered me, thought they had a big question, you know. Friends, we need to avoid asking and even answering stupid, simplistic questions like that. Trying to put things in a little box so we can move on. Makes... I wanted to say, do you think because I'm a pastor, I'm an arrogant jerk? No one goes to hell for homosexuality. No one goes to hell for adultery or gossiping or gluttony or any other sin. You go to hell for self-righteousness, for, 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 for believing you don't need Christ. Hell is just simply saying, I, I'm going to go my own way. Separating God doesn't send anybody to hell, but we can go on our own. And that can be a self-righteous person who says, I'm a Christian heterosexual. I guess I'm good. Or it can be, a, it can be another person who's non-religious who just says, you know, I'm fine the way I am. God is still in the business of transforming lives. And He does it by washing us and justifying us. And the Bible says it's possible to live in Christ no matter who you are. This is really difficult for us because what it means is all of us need to submit our lives under the Lordship of Jesus. That means our sexuality. It means committing to, a, if you're single, a celibate lifestyle. Are you crazy? That's difficult. You have to decide if you trust God's Word. It means if you're married, you're not free to sleep around. It means if you're young, you're not free to hook up if you want to live under Jesus' ethics. If you don't want to live under Jesus' ethics, you don't have to. But if you're willing to trust and follow Him... Submit to Him and obey Him. He promises that whatever cross you have to bear, and it will be lonely and difficult for a lot of us, gay and straight, to live the Jesus ethics on our sexuality. He promises if it feels like a cross, just know there's a resurrection on the other side. In the meantime, we help each other in this community. Just like that man came and helped Jesus carry His cross, we help each other carry a cross. That's the kind of community this needs to be. Friends, we've got to do better at loving our gay friends instead of just staying away or thinking talking to them is going to somehow condone something. We need to just realize we all have a shared common story trying to find freedom and love and life. Argue less, listen more, love more. Relationships first. And if you're gay, it may be especially challenged for you in certain ways to follow Jesus. But you need to know, as you submit your life to Christ, You need to know you matter to God and you matter to this community. Ben, are you saying that the church should open its doors to gays and lesbian people? It's like, hello, that's not the question. They're already here. We as us. The question is, is this a safe enough place where people who struggle or who live with LGBT identity can find love and support and grow spiritually and be allowed to have God work in their life just like you want Him to work in yours. And let God order the timetable and let Jesus minister to people. That's what it means. The biggest reason Christians 
who live with same-sex attraction go back to the lifestyle as they find so little gracious, accepting, loving, safe, truthful community. Friends, if we're not the ones to help people find and connect with Jesus, if it can't happen in our community, where in the world do you propose it happens? So what if we just loved our gay friends a little more? I refuse to give up on my gay friends. I refuse to give up on my judgmental Christian friends because I think that's what Jesus has done with me. And rather than throwing Bible verses, maybe we just hang out a little more. Listen, tell me what it's like to be you. And if you're a gay person who's here at this place, I respect you so much and I thank you for being here. It must be difficult. And I hope you have just sensed the spirit of what we're saying today. Even if you disagree with everything else I've said, I hope you know that God loves you and we love you. We really do see this as a place where you can work out your followership of Jesus with us. But you've got to know something. If that's you, you have same-sex orientation or attraction in your life and you're struggling with that, you need to know before you consider becoming part of this community, I need to warn you, uh, you're in some really bad company. Because this church is a colossal collection of moral goof-ups and the biggest mess of goof-offs and moral foul-ups I've ever seen. That's who we are. There's some serious moral follow-ups that happened this weekend among the people around you with our pride and our greed and our gluttony and our profane living and our alcoholism and our tempers and our pornography and our selfishness and insensitivity and our lying and our stealing. You're sitting in really bad company, I promise. If that's okay with you, then you're welcome here. That's what our welcome mat says. That means everyone is welcome here at Mountain. People of all orientations. But this church is also committed to exposing our messiness before a loving God and a holy God. We're not going to deny it. We're not going to deny our messiness. We're not going to make an excuse for it. And that includes our sexuality, y'all. We're not going to make an excuse. Sex is, not, sex is a gift, not a God. Sex is not our hope. It's not the ultimate thing. And we are not defined by our sexuality. We're defined as children of God. God loves us just the way we are. Now, he loves us too much to leave us that way, but He loves you just the way you are. He really does. And you're welcome here. You'll be uncomfortable like the rest of us as we seek Jesus and He shows us our cross and as He washes and sanctifies us and brings us where He wants us to be. Hey, remember that guy who unfriended me on Fenbook? I, <clears throat> I called him up and I said, You un-unfriend me right now. And he did. Remember that woman who said, looking in my eyes, would I be welcome at that church of yours? I said, well, ma'am, it doesn't matter whether you'd be welcome at my church, but the church ain't my church, it's Jesus' church. And I know what he has to say. And I said, you're welcome, and I gave her a hug. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We pray that you would help us to respond like Jesus to this issue and all issues. Help us to be grieved when people have been mistreated. Help us to get over our simplistic way of thinking and treating people. Give us courage to speak truth and love. Give us courage to really welcome with open arms and help this community to grow and stretch with the Spirit of God. Help us to courageously call sin, sin, and including our own. Point all people, Lord, to the grace through your Son Christ, who is the Lord of this church. We pray in His name. Amen.